David White says, I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith myself. I refuse it even the smallest entry. Let this then my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. We can't really say it enough. Thank you for being here. And if you like, you can, as I will do internally, thank all the conditions that made it possible, that allowed you and I to be here. You can go through, just let your mind roam, all the people, all the animals, all the plants, the minerals, the unseen forces, the technologies, the serendipities, that have allowed you and I to be here. When you begin, you realize there will be no end if you truly expand and include all the people, animals, plants, minerals, unseen forces, technologies, and serendipities that have allowed you and I to be here. In the midst of the absurd dramedy of the human realm, conditions came together for us to sit in good company, in a beautiful place, well-nourished. Conditions came together for us to begin discontinuing, calming, unwinding the echoes and traces of the dramedy of the human realm. The unwinding condition the ongoing calming, detaching from these echoes and traces is the condition for us to see and be, knowingly at least, our true nature. Clear light, selfless awareness. Being selfless awareness, we can be genuine. We can stop trying to edit others. We know it doesn't work. We can stop trying to become something we're not. Being selfless awareness, the conditions are there for an uncontrived affection. We don't have to try to be loving. We don't have to paint our mind with some pink happiness. Appreciation and joy, they spring forth as they may, as they need to. Being selfless awareness, which is actually our condition right now, just look, we don't have a history, or do we need one? Though we can take it up, the history, which means that we make it up, as anybody who's read a little bit of the research on memory knows. Being selfless awareness, which is our selfless being right now, this thing just happening, Miracle, it's just happening. You're not doing any of it. 
being that we hold lightly a self-image, if at all. Why, why do you need a self-image? Why do you need to be you and also carry around a picture of you? Being selfless awareness, we're not identified as a personality. And though we interact with people who believe they're persons, and there it is, it springs up, a personality. We don't have to worry about it. Maybe the hardest thing to appreciate or accept, being selfless awareness, which is your condition right now, you do not have any problems. You do not have any problems, though you are free to enter that way of seeing your life, just like that. Being selfless awareness, which is our truth, which you can't make happen through meditation, this is the universe in totality here right now. Any other universe is something that you imagine, and that imagining is you. So we respond naturally to what appears. We take care of what's right in front of us. We tend to the actual universe. You can't tend to an abstract universe, but you can tend to this one. Something about Zen practice is that it will wean us off the word why. Why? Why? As if we'll pin down some first cause to things. We'll pin down and isolate one place the problem began, the predicament began. Why do we have this coming together? Why do you and I have this coming together of auspicious conditions to practice, and it seems others don't. I don't know. Why are we interested, at least partially, in this opportunity? Why others might not be? I don't know. Why has very, very limited utility. But how, maybe we're getting somewhere, how will we engage it now that we are sitting here? I think that's a pretty good question. I'm gonna share a little poem with you. This is from a Dharma teacher named Traktam Kepa. Do you know the flavors of sunrise? I meeting form, lover meeting love. Have you known the silent way light moves from heart to eye, the world made from a stuff far more wondrous than dreams? Do you know the dark twig, the pine shadow, and how damp forest soil tastes to the soul? Have you known spring's greening of life deep into the marrow, the fields, pastures, plains, of bodies and landscape? Do you know the way that ear meets sound, old friend, new love, fragile first kiss, 
Have you known bird calls, cries of babies, sounds of engines, rested in mind's vast space, known as love only? Do you know the corpses of your casual disregard, the wounded heart torn by unlove? Have you known the shipwrecks of this life's efforts, the taste acrid in the mouth? Have you touched the sharp crystals of reason? Do you know the scar of isolation, the hornet of alienation's repeated sting? Have you known a thousand shattered pieces of dawn, sun meeting dark sky, spread out across your day with the cold of no regrets? Do you know the immaculate touch that restores mind and heart? Have you known the dreaming dark unknowing with its mysterious tininess of all moments, so small they engulf the world? It bears repeating that Zazen the spirit of our practice is to rest deeper than the surface ways of mind to lay bare our true nature. Setting down our love affair with our suffering-making thinking. This often abusive partner. Setting down our arguments with the nature of the universe. What an absurd thing we do. The hubris of being a human being, that we are in argument with the nature of the universe, specifically impermanence. Setting down our greed for more than is given. Which would be fine if we lived in some actually loveless, dry desert, but there is no such place in this world. Zazen, resting deeper, coursing in that space deeper. But we could also appreciate it positively. Our practice is being clarity, so bird song is clarity being not preoccupied with memory and fantasy so leaf color can blaze intimate. It's up to you and I. The depth of the drop is the height of the moon. Being open to inhabiting the raw and vibrant flavors of human being. not looking for more than what's here so that the illumination that is here can reveal. Opening the heart to the heart to the self. Tasting it, sometimes without even knowing it. The miraculous unrequitableness, the gift of this life. I love reading Jane um, Hirschfield, her poetry during, during session. This is called Standing Deer. 
as the house of a person in age sometimes grows cluttered with what is too loved or too heavy to part with, the heart may grow cluttered, and still the house will be emptied, and still the heart. As the thoughts of a person in age sometimes grow sparer, like a great cleanness come into a room, the soul may grow sparer. One sparrow song carves it completely. And still the room is full, and still the heart. Empty and filled like the curling half-light of morning in which everything is possible, and so why not? Filled and empty like the curling half-light of evening in which everything now is finished, and so why not? Beloved, what can be, what was, will be taken from us. What can be, what was, will be taken from us. I have disappointed, I am sorry. I knew no better. A root seeks water. Tenderness only breaks open the earth. This morning, out the window, the deer stood like a blessing, then vanished. I decided I would take a little bit of time and talk about methods of practice. Let me get into the nuts and bolts a little bit and see what I can offer in that way. Clearly, we have to deal with the mind. How do we deal with the mind? That's what method is. Method is an answer to what do you do about the shit show mind. You have to do something. And most of you have been given instructions on how to practice. And some of you have been given them intimately from a teacher who has practiced them for many, many, many hours. And maybe you have enough trust in those instructions or that person to give them a chance to apply them, to let them do their work. I say this because most people don't, actually. Sad and a truth from a teacher's perspective. Most people don't. But maybe you have enough trust to apply them. All methods are united by two essential qualities. And of course, we try to um, name things. The teachings try to name things. We try to name things. Our mind tries to name things. And the name and the thing it points to, they never actually meet. Just like the things we think about and the moments that are thought about never actually meet. The pictures we have in our minds and the realities of those pictures are never even all that close at all. Well, unfortunately, the teachings have the same problem of illusion. Somebody says, serenity. And somebody gets an idea in their mind of how that's supposed to feel, what that might look at. And then they're looking for it, and they decided it feels a certain way, so they keep looking. And meanwhile, there could be serenity there. And it doesn't match the idea. Big problem. Probably better not to say anything. 
So I'm just using some words. The words I want to use for these two essential qualities that unite methods are non-grasping and contact. Non-grasping and contact. All methods have both simultaneously, though a different balance of the two. So I'll start with non-grasping. The first and maybe the last thing in Buddhist practice, or the always thing, is shelving the mind that says, I want, I want, I want, I want. What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? You put it in a drawer and it pops out. You lock it in your closet and somehow it has a key and it finds you once again in your lap. I want, I want, I want, I want. This body is made of I want, so it's no wonder. So shelving, temporarily, the mind that says, I want, I want, I want, what's next, what's next, what's next? That's the first thing about non-grasping. All methods include this. The longing within that thought, the truth that fills your body and mind and says something is missing, realization has not fully revealed itself, is sublimated into diligence. In other words, desire is not wrong, it just gets put in places that are not intelligent. Desire is not wrong, it just gets put places that don't work or don't work all that well. So we step out of the logic or attitude of getting something or getting away from something by inhabiting and embracing this appearance. And you've been hearing this like a broken record. First point about non-grasping. Kind of Dharma 101. But even after 30 years of practice, many of us are still working on Dharma 101. More subtly though, non-grasping is not running interference with appearance. not running interference with appearance. In non-grasping, impermanence becomes our friend. Impermanence actually is bliss and ease. Every moment and all and everything is a moment. Things are not within moments, things are moments. That's why there's no things. All and everything moment by moment, spontaneously blossoms and fades. It's happening right now. Don't have to use fancy poetic language. It appears and it's gone. The appearing in the gone, by the time you say appear, it's already gone. By the time you say gone, it's already appeared. We sit in the midst of this reality. It's like a dreamer without a dream. actually can't grasp onto anything. Sometimes weird, you practice 
very strongly and then you read about grasping and clinging, you go, what are they talking about? You can't even do that. You can't put your finger on anything. The previous version of you is gone. It's replaced, you could say. So non-grasping is not running interference with appearance because already it's liberated. Fancy words meaning you actually don't have to do anything about thoughts. You don't have to do anything about sensations. You don't have to do anything about feelings. This is like Koen Ejo Zenji. Think you're doing the treasury of luminosity? You did, you did this morning, yeah. Saying, if you let thoughts be what thoughts truly are, they are prajna, they are blossoms of space. But if we don't have confidence in that, then you make them an obstacle. They didn't never made themselves an obstacle. It's just mind sparkle. It's just the fizzing of true nature. And they wear word clothing. It's just, it's just creative energy. We become fascinated with it. That's the problem. In non-grasping, the mind is just a display of prajna, meaning, meaning nothing, really. Meaning the light that is you and everything is also in your thoughts, so don't make a big deal out of it. Don't make an enemy. All sensations, when left as they are, are perfectly and unfailingly this living, intimate revelation. It's not fancy. Maybe when you first start to taste it, it's, a, it's, it's wonderful. It's not some fancy state. It's already the case. Impermanence is bliss and ease. It's not fancy, but it is liberating. So not running interference with appearance. You can hear the problem with discriminating mind because it is always whispering that something is wrong. Something's not quite right here. And we're trying to edit experience. We're seeing that on a very subtle level in Zazen, but in our lives, we're doing this, we are doing it on a macro level. We're always trying to edit experience. It's never being said that you should just lie on your floor and stare at the ceiling and say, so what about chocolate or vanilla? That's not the point. The point is the alwaysness of trying to edit experience. So all methods have the element, have the quality of non-grasping, non-interference. You could say allowingness. You could say spaciousness. I like to call it trust.
Sometimes in the Buddhist teachings, they talk about higher and lower teachings, and the higher teachings are only accessible by trust. By trust in the nature of things. Maybe I can share a little bit of that trust with my little bit of it. But this non-grasping is trust. What is arising for us is not out of place. It's not stagnant. It's not stale. It's not devoid of the truth. So the second quality of all methods I'm calling contact. Specifically, it means contact between attention and locus of attention, the place of attention. Whether it's brought down to one point or whether it's spread wide, attention is always somewhere. Contact is the contact between attention and the locus of attention. What we've decided is the object of attention. Now there is a time in practice where, where as irrational as it may sound, we no longer experience contact between attention and locus of attention. Awareness is everywhere at once. Mind is not something that just moves through space and hits things and brightens them and knows them like a flashlight. In other words, there's no disconnection between experience and awareness. That, those are different words for the very same thing. We realize that and we sit at ease. Experience and awareness are just different names. Breath is awareness and awareness is breath. You could notice right now, you don't have to make any kind of mental strain or effort at all to experience the breath. It presents itself. So if that's not our reality, then we work to keep locus of attention and attention, object and contact in contact. And contact matures. It gradually moves from occasional to more steady. An article of faith, if you're newer to practice, is that you sustain and you stay steadfast in your effort. And even though it seems like, wow, I'm not, I can't be with my breath for even a nano moment before I'm off in some fantasy or before I'm back lamenting my condition. But you apply the energy of contact and it moves from occasional contact to more steady. You can look at my hands. Meditation beginning is this is the object, this is attention. Beginning it's like this for most people and then and then we keep working and 
and then eventually, and you still get distracted. It gradually moves from requiring more energy to less energy. It gradually moves from attention resting upon an object to the two interpermeating. What I was describing. And you go, oh, it's always the case. And it's really fun to meditate from that place. So in understanding contact, we can clear away the idea that success in meditation is making a state of mind that seems spiritual. Many people, if, they, if I could get them to be honest, they would say, well, I don't know what they would say. I don't know people. But I imagine you would, if you could fess up, you'd say, I'm really trying to have a cool state. I'm sitting here all this time. I would really like a cool state. I would really like a little souvenir. The cool states, they come as epiphenomena of steady contact, but they're not the point. If you get clear about that, if you can have confidence in what I'm saying, it streamlines your meditation because all you're doing as far as this aspect is sustaining contact. In the Mahamudra teachings, they call it staying. They don't call it luminous bliss. They don't call it resting at the source of all things. They don't call it, you know, spiritual badass. They call it staying. But it has nice effects. So every method has these two qualities being practiced in union, non-grasping and contact. So for example, say body breath is your method. So in body breath, breathing body, contact, close, subtle attunement with body breathing is foregrounded. Non-grasping is there in your non-involvement in anything else. You're not interfering. You're not involved with the sense gates. You're not interfering. You're not involved with thoughts. You don't have to stop those appearings. They liberate themselves. The non-grasping quality serves your ability to sustain contact. The more you sustain contact, the more there is non-grasping. In a way, it's two sides of one coin. Unless you're a Vajrayana Buddhist, meditation is quite simple. It's exquisitely simple. Some people practice awareness of sound as method. Contact is with the soundscape. And that can be done with the singing of that bird. It could be done with the whole soundscape. It could be done with the, the voice of space itself. What matters is that you choose. 
contact with the soundscape. Non-grasping is there as not labeling. Because when we label things, that's a kind of grasping. The understanding mind, the knowing mind. The mind that wants to organize experience so that we can have dominion over it and control it. Non-grasping is there as not labeling. Non-grasping is there as not reaching out. Non-grasping is there as not rejecting or favoring one sound over another. You could go into deep intimacy with the sound of a chainsaw if you understand this. The sound of traffic could become luminous openness because of non-grasping. Grasping says, well, I need a waterfall or some chimes or some Enya. (laughs) Most of you are really too young to know who Enya is. Shikantaza, or serene illumination. We should stop saying silent illumination because that's dualistic. Serene illumination. With the foundation of whole body breathing, contact with that, non-grasping is the heart. So contact is contact with non-grasping itself. One is devotedly immersed in non-grasping and not even grasping at that. So these methods and any methods like them, they deliver us, they initiate us into thankfulness. We strip existence naked and we very much like what we see. Very much like what we be. It's a guarantee that if you do that, if you genuinely do so, you will be pleased with the result. Or your money back. No, you're not getting your money back. And what we taste cannot truly be lost, even if we're only able to once in a while touch it. Our true nature is not a state, but our mind is inconsistently able to rest in it. So it, the experience of it is like peekaboo, until maybe someday it's not. It cannot truly be lost. It cannot truly be forgotten. And best of all, we're not special for the initiation because everyone is actually already in on the joke. Everyone is already at the freedom place. The mind literally can't wrap around it because it's on the other side of that. Thankfulness. As Dogen Zenji said at lunch, it seems that some people recognize the freedom place and others not yet. Why is that? Excuse me. See how sticky why is? How is that? I'm going to read you one last thing 
there is a friend of mine started practicing with a um, Zen teacher in Ithaca, New York, named David Radin. And David, a number of years ago, um, had bad kidney disease and was um, told he was going to die. And he gave a lot of Dharma talks at this time that he was um, probably going to die. It turned out one of his close students, and I don't know how, what the degree to which this is an ordeal, but one of his close students gave their kidney to David so he could live a little longer. So that's part of the, the context of this, this little talk. I was told a few weeks ago that this body, if left untreated, probably has less than a year to live. I asked the doctor to live, excuse me, to die from kidney disease. Is it an easy death? And he said, yeah, it's a nice death. You get really tired and foggy and then disappear. That's pretty much how I feel. But then my wife said she would kill me violently if I did that. So it isn't an option. <laughs> he said that the other options were dialysis and transplant, but to remember that nobody gets out of here alive. A doctor teaching the Dharma. I love it. If one were to be gifted 10 or 20 additional years of life, how could that gift be repaid? What should one do if one were at death's door and then somebody said, okay, here is an organ transplant, 10 more years. What do you do at that time? Or to think of it in more general terms, what is it that makes life worth having been lived at any moment? Given the fact that one is alive now and one is not going to be continuing in life, whether it be a day or 10 years or 50 years, what is it that makes the appearance on earth worthwhile? Of course, for a student of Zen, this is always the question. What meaning does life have given the impermanence of the stay here? And one of the things I love about the Zen tradition is no questions are off limits. Any spiritual inquiry that has arisen in the heart of any practitioner is found in one form or another in the koans. We're not afraid. We, the, the doctrine is not something we bow to and, and refrain from questioning so that we won't piss off the priest. What meaning does life have given the impermanence of the stay here? It took the historical Buddha six years of intense practice to uncover the mind essence that underlies the impermanent self. And their insight has inspired spiritual seekers for 2,500 years. Buddha realized that to be alive is to have an unpayable debt. To be alive is to be gifted life. It is not an attainment. It is not something that one achieves. And not only have we been gifted life, but we have been gifted life in a human form. Being gifted life in a human form, we have the gift of a human mind. What makes one worthy of human life is the realization that one does not deserve to exist. And the mind is immersed in gratitude for being alive. What makes one worthy of human life is the realization that one does not deserve to exist. And if the mind does not have that gratitude, then it has not paid back its debt. It cannot yet appreciate what it is to be here. 
The problem that people experience may be called falling out of the Garden of Eden. When you fall out of the Garden of Eden, you fall into the knowledge of good and evil, which is another term for the thinking mind. That's what I've been saying, right? The discriminating mind. When the consciousness falls into the thinking mind through the activity of I am, the thinking activity conceives itself to be an independent self. This is the arrogance of the thinking activity. I was practicing lying down after lunch, and when the mind is quieter, or just resting in basic space, you realize the life is humming, the body is life humming with aliveness in so many ways, and that thought comes in and tries to lay claim to it all, tries to take the throne and assert itself as somehow really important. But there are like a billion microbes living on this body. There are a billion creatures tingling in the microbiome. There is the eye seeing and the ears hearing and the tongue tasting and has nothing to do with whatever it is that we mean by me. This body is a universe unto itself. But the thinking mind has this weird arrogance. It does. It says, I. This is the arrogance of the thinking activity. That is why it loses its contact with the tree of life or the kingdom of heaven. Because it says, I am existing of my own power. I am does not like to bow. I am likes to prove its worth. This whole universe exists so that I can satisfy myself. That is how I am looks at the universe. It is all arrogance. One moment of realizing I am only here on a visit and the ability to see, hear, be has been gifted and I calms down. When you are sitting zazen, you are allowing the mind to calm down. If you just relax with your mind as it goes through its stuff, if you persevere, if you take on the practice sincerely, apply yourself to detaching from thinking by grounding and breathing awareness, then peace and clarity can be realized. A mind that bows knows that its appearance in this human world is temporary, that aggression is ridiculous, Worry is ridiculous, stress is ridiculous, and thinking that your personal life is what this universe is about is ridiculous. In some sense, people close to death are the soberest people. A mind that bows knows that its appearance in this human world is temporary, that aggression is ridiculous, worry is ridiculous, stress is ridiculous, and thinking that your personal life or your crusade, is what this universe about is ridiculous. When the mind comes home and rests in the light of its true being, that is called awareness. And this is what we're doing. So please fall in love with your practice and love it even when you don't love it. Just do it. And just really doing it, you'll fall in love with it. Please persist.